0: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, before we begin, just a quick reminder, there's lots of stuff for you on wealthformula.com, the website associated with this podcast. Lots of things to download and enhance your experience There's also some email lists you may want to join, including the Accredited Investor Club. Some interesting things coming down the line there, so if you're an accredited investor or interested in seeing some deal flow, certainly sign up and get onboarded uh, if you are an accredited investor. Now this week, I am going to talk about an interesting concept that seems to happen within governments in general. It's uh, sort of the natural history of what happens over time. You know, government's a funny thing. It's an organization that makes and enforces rules and regulations. And the more rules and regulations it makes, uh, the bigger it gets, right? It's a monster. It's a bureaucracy. And it just, you know, thrives on making itself bigger and more rules and more committees. And in that process, the government also becomes a significant employer, huge employer. And the problem with this employer, he just doesn't really care about being lean and profitable. He just wants to get bigger and bigger. And it doesn't really matter how much things cost, right? Because the bottom line doesn't matter. It's more about creating more things to control. But as the government starts to infringe on people's perceived personal space, people start to push back. And that is really the only force that resists this monster's thirst for power. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not not all people want to resist that power. Some people would rather just you know, go all in, have government control of everything and But I think for the majority of people, there is a resistance that pushes back and keeps things from getting out of control. Now, make no mistake, during these times when governments are held in check by the majority of the people, uh, the monster's appetite for power and growth, it really doesn't go away. It just lurks in the background, waiting for its opportunity to pounce. Uh, And that opportunity comes up periodically. It's when things get bad, when people are at their most vulnerable, these times of crises. I don't know if that crisis or crises, I don't know what the plural of crisis, crises. When things go south, here's the thing, when things go south, people are willing to give up more of their freedoms in exchange for stability. Just think about that, right? I mean, it makes sense. Governments are more than happy to oblige there. And if you think, if you you want to think about how this applies to some of the more recent events in our history. Just think about the terrorist attack of uh, 9-11. You know, think about the 2008 financial crisis, COVID, even to a certain extent, the Silicon Bank failure. In each situation, the government found an opportunity basically to change the rules and, you know, obtain ultimately more control. This playbook, by the way, and I'm not really a conspiracy guy. I'm just not. I know there's a lot of people in this space who are. And this isn't really a conspiracy theory. It's just how things work. It's the economics of big government. It's like big government begets big government. Mainstream figures will tell you the same, and you'll find out this week on this week's Wealth Formula podcast how that works from a couple of guys who used to work for the government. We'll have that interview when we come back from these messages. with an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34% with hold times just over three and a half years. These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on wealth formula podcasts are Alex Pollock and Howard Adler. Now this is a uh, they have a book called "Surprised Again: The COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble." Uh, both Alex and Howard are, you know, they're they're guys who worked uh, for the Treasury, which is, you know, pretty mainstream. And of of course the the concepts that they talk about in their book are probably will be of surprise to a number of you. Let me give you a little background on Alex uh, Pollock first. He's a senior fellow of the Mises Institute and the author of Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised, Uh, notably it's uh, Surprised Again this time, right? And Boom and Bust, Financial Cycles and Human Prosperity. He was a principal director of the Office of Financial Research, U.S. Treasury, from November 19th uh, to February of twenty-one. Uh, There's a lot more to say about him, but I want to get to Howard, who's uh, also an attorney and former government official who from May 2019 to January 21 served as the deputy assistant secretary of the Treasury for the Financial Stability Oversight Council, where he was responsible for monitoring the financial stability of the United States. Uh, during the first year of the COVID-19 crisis. He's very distinguished, been awarded uh, the Treasury's Distinguished Service Award for his efforts uh, by the Secretary of Treasury as well. Long introduction for you guys. You know, you're, you're too accomplished for the show, unfortunately, and we don't have time for anything else now. <laughs>
1: this, this says uh, former surgeon turned, uh, turned uh, uh, star investor.
0: <laughs> well... Something like that. But welcome to the show, guys. This is is a fascinating topic. First of all, you know, uh, speaking about this book and and the concepts, I think you talk about a U.S. uh, experience in boom and bust financial uh, cycles every 10 years. How does that happen? I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Historically, it is just the case that more or less, not exactly, but more or less, about every 10 years, Uh, we have some kind of financial crisis. Um, um, Paul Volcker had a very witty comment on this. He said, every 10 years, we have the greatest crisis in 50 years. (laughs) And and that's a, a comment that's particularly insightful because memories are short, and institutional memories are short. New people come in, old ones' memories get fuzzy. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, one of the decades that both Howard and I lived through was the 1980s. In the 1980s, a thousand savings and loans in this country failed and 1400 commercial banks yeah. failed. People just don't remember this. Sure. Uh, these uh, financial uh, structures can be very fragile when faced with what they didn't expect. And uh, and often enough, things that weren't expected or even thought impossible do happen. Anyway, uh, the uh, the physicist Freeman Dyson said many things which were considered impossible nevertheless came to pass. Sure, and so right. And examples would include house prices falling on a national basis, which was thought to be impossible. That was early two thousands. Uh, oil prices dropping precipitously in the early 1980s, which was thought to be impossible. Big important banks uh, going bust. Uh, and more recently, interest rates rising rapidly after everybody had gotten used to the idea that yeah. interest rates would be lower for longer. So, this is a long history, over history, different things at different times. Uh, but the great financial historian Charles Kindleberger. Uh, from whom I learned this 10 year more or less cycle Uh, observed it over several centuries Uh, in the 19th century when Walter Badgett of whom we'll speak later was writing, he was observing a 10 year cycle in in England in financial crises. uh, And we still have it now. So we've had crises in the eighties, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, 2010s, and now 2020s. And here we go.
0: So is the idea there, that it's just the natural history of the economy or do you is is there a, is there a sense that there is a um, you know that sometimes the government actually creates these problems
2: oh no question that the government contributes to creating these problems uh, we saw it well in the 1980s with the collapse of the savings and loan savings and loans which was from the same thing a Silicon Valley Valley Bank collapsed from, namely having short term deposits invested in very long term fixed rate assets. That uh, structure of the savings and loan balance sheets was mandated by the government. They were forced to do that by the regulation. Uh, in the in the great housing crisis, uh, the government was the leader in trying to create what they called innovative, but which meant low quality mortgages, mm-hmm. uh, of course, unraveled. And now we have a long period, um, the Federal Reserve, I say, being the pi- piper uh, for believing uh, in very low interest rates, and that it was going to be safe to hold fixed-rate assets against it. And now we see the opposite uh, is the case. So the, the government is absolutely involved uh, in helping to create these, as well as trying to get out of them uh, once we're in yeah and, and of,
1: of course of course um when ben bernanke in 2008 began his so-called quantitative easing which involved um buying uh mortgage bank securities uh up to the tune of about ultimately 2.7 uh trillion dollars worth uh thus becoming making the fed the really the largest savings and loan in in the country and um and certainly uh, providing uh, 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 a natural, if you will, artificial support to the housing market, creating a housing bubble that we've now got. Now that that quantitative easing is going to end, uh, is ending, is winding down, uh, you know, one can speculate what's going to happen long-term to the, uh, to the housing market without that, uh, that crutch. But it's not only the government, it's also human psychology. Uh, when When the markets are going well, people don't want to miss out on a good thing, and they keep buying, and people tend to have collective amnesia. They forget that things can go down. and then they're reminded um there's a crash and uh, and then they miraculously uh, forget again. It's sort of what I noticed as a young lawyer when I was uh, doing sovereign debt deals in uh, in Latin America. Everyone talked about the prospect, the prospects of Latin America, what a great place it would be for future growth. And then uh, they default. And and then a couple of years later, we'd be talking about prospects again, and people would forget about the defaults until the next default. Yeah, It's also human psychology.
2: Yeah, And remember, and Howard's very uh, accurate point, that while the bubble is on, lots of people are making money.
0: Right. And, and that brings me to the next uh, question, which is one of your arguments is that Government agencies, the Fed, everyone involved uh, in control always tends to use these moments of shock, uh, you know, in the boom and boom and bust cycles to gain power. Is that is that right?
1: I think you've got it um, exactly right. Uh, For example, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley bank failure and the signature bank failure just that, you know, a few weeks ago is a perfect example of that. Now there is, are calls for uh, yet yeah, tighter regulation, uh, more regulators, uh, more authority to the, uh, to the Fed and other bank regulators, and yet um, uh, at least Silicon Valley Bank failed uh, because of uh, the most basic thing in banking, ban- managing your interest rate duration. This is something that you'll learn if you're a, you know, a bank, uh, a, a young banker in your first day of training. This is something you learn in the first week. Um, uh that you have that the safest thing to do is match the duration of your assets and liabilities. And if there's a mismatch, then you're gonna be either vulnerable to an up to a rise or a decrease in interest rates, depending on which side the mismatch is. And uh that they, they fed this the every there are 15 pages in the Federal Reserve Bank Examiner's Manual on this point. The authority then examiners called it out. The authority was there. to to fix this. And yet uh, the the supervisors failed to do it. And now they're going to impose new regulations, which are needed at least to to solve that problem.
0: Right. So basically it's, you know, I guess part of the, you know, what this argument sort of reminds me too is, I don't know if you recall this book. uh, It was in 2007. It was Naomi Klein. Um, The shock doctrine. Does that ring a bell at all? Anyway, similar concept where basically the idea was that, um, you know, every time there was a major, uh, you know, economic problem or any kind of disaster, really, uh, that created shock, that the there was an opportunity to create further control, further regulation, and usurp power because people aren't paying attention to, you know, anything but survival at that point. Is that, that's kind of... Uh, the
2: crisis, the crisis tends to centralize power. Right. Uh, and then it tends not to, never to go back to where it was before. There is a, a classic book on this, which you may know, "Crisis and Leviathan" is the name of it, mm-hmm. uh, by Robert Higgs, which makes exactly this argument. I think very brilliantly. There's a constant ratcheting up uh, of the uh, of the power of the state uh, with each crisis, and then it might back off a little bit, but it never goes back, and then it ratchets up. Again, we uh, we certainly see this in the financial system.
0: How did this? Um, you know, I know, you know, when you mentioned the bank crises, it sounds like there was a, the 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 current bank crises, these little small banks, that um, essentially these were oversight issues internally, right?
2: Management, you can call it fundamental management mistakes.
0: Fundamental management mistakes. But then, I guess the question is. You know, what is the role of government in that? And is the government at fault in this? I guess, uh, you know, to your point initially about how the, you know, these cycles are, are really almost planned out, so to speak.
2: No, not planned out. I don't think so. Yeah. But they do happen with some regularity, which is fascinating.
0: Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. And let, let me ask you this. So how, you, you mentioned political finance. You said all finance is political finance. You want to talk <laughs> about that?
1: well you know it's uh it's all political uh the secretary of the treasury is essentially a political figure uh the the uh, uh chairman Powell the board of governors of the federal reserve system uh supposedly it's the fed is supposedly above politics but nonetheless uh I would submit that any uh senior official who gets appointed by an elected official is is by his very his or her very own nature political sure And uh, politics um, factors uh, uh, very heavily uh, into this. One of the things we have to watch out for, and and you talk about government power, and I just want to tie those two themes together for a minute, is that now you're starting to see, well, gee, if deposits are not safe, the deposits that aren't federally insured uh, in the banking system above $250,000, uh, maybe we should go to uh, a, cent- a central bank digital currency, a, a, a Fed money, mm. where in, a se- in essence, your bank is is the government. So um, since all of your money would be guaranteed by the government, uh, then your deposits would be safe. And you're starting to see uh, smart people uh, make that argument, but that is a very dangerous situation because it would give enormous power uh, to the central bank. If If that right. were to happen, you might not have a private banking system.
2: Banking we think system it's the system. worst financial idea of current times. Right. The, central the bank digital currency.
1: Just from, from starting from an economic point of view, the banking system employs about two and a half million people. If they were out of work, that would have a terrible impact on the economy. Banks are the main tenant of many uh, commercial office buildings that would have a horrible impact on the, uh, on the real estate market. And if all of these deposits were on the books of the government, they would have to have assets to balance these deposits, which would mean that the government would get to pick who gets money led to them and who doesn't. And obviously, you can see uh, that in uh, some administrations, that would mean uh, no uh, oil and gas companies got money, uh, uh, and y- you would have politics going into the Private, what has up to now been a private credit allocation um, crisis, and uh, and we not to mention the fact that the government could look at every financial transaction uh, that every uh, individual in the country had, and we think it would have disastrous consequences uh, for the economy and for people's freedom and privacy.
0: This is an interesting concept because there's you know multiple problems with it. You mentioned privacy you know, the the ability of the government to see all transactions, um, that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, I get different stories on what the purpose of the central bank uh, decentralized um, process would be all about. I mean, some people argue that, listen, all these dollars are all digital anyway. All they're doing is turning it in, you know, using a different, more efficient software. But you see it as a more of a, an elimination of the bank's type situation
2: we see it as a colossal centralization of power yeah over people, individuals uh, and over institutions uh, in the country in my in our in our judgment, extremely dangerous and a really truly bad idea do
0: you think there's a political uh, i mean first first of all, you have the banking industry which is probably not going to be real happy about this and, <laughs> and they've got some fairly powerful lobbyists, I imagine, uh, you know, for, for being, being big banks. I mean, how, how realistic uh, from a political standpoint do you think that this kind of change would actually be? Well,
1: it depends on what happens. If, uh, if two medium-sized banks like uh, SVB and, uh, and uh, Signature failed, uh no, but if there are massive bank failures and people start worrying about the uh the health of the banking system and uh uh people are at risk and the the market crashes and you have a, a huge uh failure of confidence in banks, then I think uh you know a lot of bad policy is made as a result of uh, crises. Then you may see uh a lot of people hailing this sort of thing as uh as a panacea. And people maybe not prone to listen to the banks that, after all, would be the ones who are perceived to have gotten us into all this trouble.
0: Is Is there anything that would make you um, concerned that the larger banks may have a similar uh, similar problems going forward?
1: I think the um, I think the the larger banks are. First of all, I think most of them are pretty well run. Uh, they have embedded, um, uh, they have embedded, this is an easy problem to fix. I mean, there are interest rate hedges available that people could just have bought in- insurance against this sort of problem, or you could have simply matched the duration more closely of your assets and liabilities. Uh, and the Fed has made it um, easy now for people with this problem to get out of it by basically opening up a credit line that will lend uh, 100% of your collateral, assuming it's uh, government uh, uh, government, and mortgage bonds, uh, even though that the market value of that collateral may be far less, which is, you know, uh, uh, a great deal. Uh, so I-, I, yes, I However, did, to be noted,
2: uh, can I just jump in there, Howard? Yeah, sure. To be noted on that credit facility, the losses from such a facility will be taken by the treasury, that is to say the taxpayers. The Fed will lend you the money, but the junior partner in the deal are the taxpayers. Right. But, the most, but, but most importantly, what we learned from
1: 2007 and 2008 are that these big banks are completely safe because the government will not allow them, <laughs> cannot allow them to fail. Right. If JP Morgan or Citi or Bank of America failed, their counterparties uh, uh, who would be exposed, uh, there are so many tentacles in every um, aspect of our financial system and our economy that their failure could simply not be allowed to happen. Sure. Uh, Dodd-Frank was supposed to cure the uh, too big to fail problem, but of course it didn't, and that's what you see now. You see a flight to safety, people taking their money out of the mid-sized and regional and smaller banks and putting them in the in the uh, so-called GSIBs, the very largest banks.
2: Yeah, it is It is the case, however, that very big banks can get into a lot of trouble, Big big organizations. Have failed. Uh, big big banks have had to be bailed out. Uh, uh, the the term "too big to fail," I think, was invented in 1984 uh, for the bailout of Continental Illinois, which seemed like a big 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 failure at the time. It's been since surpassed many times. Uh, but big organizations uh, can get in trouble. They do have this. Uh, uh, implicit support, which is very real. Another good example of that would be Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, both of which became insolvent and were bailed out at great uh, taxpayer cost. However, I think we have to say oh, among the risks we have, I, I mentioned a, a minute ago the Federal Reserve has Pied Piper the banking system. Among the risks is that in the banking system as a whole, uh, there is a very large mismatch between long-term fixed rate assets uh, and the and on net, the short-term floating rate deposits which are financing them. A huge mismatch. Now, uh, the, the data is challenging here, but uh, there have been two studies recently. Uh, one estimated that the mark-to-market unrealized loss on the whole banking system, and this counts both uh, both bonds and loans, one estimated $1.7 trillion market-to-market loss for the banking system, and the other estimated $2 trillion market-to-market loss for the whole banking system. Now, uh, the banking system as a whole has $2.2 trillion in capital and equity, of that 2.2 trillion, 400 billion, however, is goodwill and other intangibles. So the tangible equity is about 1.8 trillion. Now, what does that mean exactly? If you if you have a mark-to-market market loss that's more or less equal to the mark to the mark-to-market market capital. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. To the to the tangible capital which would, you know, to get to the mark-to-market capital, you subtract the loss from the the capital. Well, we're going to find out, but there is definitely a a, a system-wide theme here, Uh, decisions made by managements, but very much induced uh, by the long period of suppression of both short- and long-term rates uh, uh, by the Federal Reserve. And that's something we need to keep our eye on. And now we've we've been surprised yet again, as we said, by these couple of of bank failures. Uh, And then we'll we'll see how the rest of this uh, plays out. Depends a lot on how interest rates play out. Now, in the 80s, interest rates were pushed into double digits with disastrous consequences. banks here, we have short-term interest rates around 5%, which people say is high, but it's not high. Historically, 5% is an average kind of interest rate, but it's already causing some uh, certainly important strains.
0: What do you think from your perspective as uh, former treasury people, um, how do you look at the way uh, things are being managed by the Treasury Department, and by the Fed right now.
1: We've both, uh, if you've read any of the stuff we've written lately, we've both been rather critical of, of that management. Uh, we talk about uh, the COVID crisis, which um, in a crisis, uh, uh, Alex alluded to Walter Badgett, who was a 19th century British banker and uh, great writer. Really wrote the book on uh, on what you do when you have a financial crisis, and and the book is you uh, you lend freely to companies of good quality at high interest rates and on good collateral. And uh, the COVID crisis was a different kind of crisis. It wasn't due to the inflation of an asset bubble or a lack of capital in in uh, in banking or housing, like the two thousand seven uh, two thousand eight crisis uh, was. Uh, it was basically uh, the whole economy shut down. We had a health crisis, and that led to political decisions, forced the economy to shut down. Small businesses were closing. Restaurants were closing. We had to get money out into the hands of people. We were facing a, uh, an economic and a human catastrophe, and that's what we did. So we just lent freely. A lot of these loans were forgiven. We adopted part of Badgett's um, uh, plan, but, but 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 not all of it. Uh, the the problem with uh, with this is we are also followers in, what in our book we call the Cincinnatian principle. Cincinnatus was a Roman general who, when Rome was invaded, was called out away from his farm to take, given dictatorial powers and told to fix things. He defeated the enemy in 15 days, gave up his powers and went back to his farm. The Cincinnatian principle says that when a crisis is over, you stop. But this administration didn't stop. I mean, the crisis was really over at the end of 2020, but we had massive additional spending. Uh, uh, the one point- And uh, money printing. Well, and money printing, the 1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, uh, these uh, uh, proposals to forgive student loans, all of which cost massive amounts of money, and that's inflationary. Uh, you know, there's a recent Federal Reserve study that uh, if you if you ran the numbers down attributed uh, roughly 40 percent of the uh, of the uh, inflation that we've seen to uh, to government spending and you can't do that without having uh, an inflationary effect and we think that uh, we think that uh, had uh, prudence and common sense reigned in 2021 and the the, the spigots uh, financial spigots were turned off that we would not be in the kind of shape we are today with the, this uh uh massive rise in uh interest rates we would have some inflation but wouldn't is, it wouldn't have been as bad as it, it is today so we've been uh i think uh, uh both critical of uh the economic policy that has been followed by uh the Biden uh the, the Biden uh administration
2: if you believe uh, that in a crisis whatever the cause uh, it takes crisis actions then the cincinnati and doctrine we think is really important. You've got to turn off, you turn off the interventions when the crisis is over, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to make it happen in our, it's hard to take
0: things away once you give them.
2: That's right. Everything you give creates a constituency for people who benefit from it. And now a good, a really uh, searing example of this is the feds purchases of mortgages, which Howard, mentioned before in the form of mortgage-backed securities. In the face of an unbelievable uh, house price inflation in this country, the Fed went right on stoking the housing market Mm -hmm. all the way to March 2022. It was amazing. And we uh, said at the time, they have to just stop buying mortgages, but they didn't. They went right on in the face of of a giant house price inflation. Well, no, Among the prices we're paying is the correction of that mistake.
0: Going back to, um, you know, your, your, um, your comment, uh, Howard, about uh, money printing and excessive, uh, you know, intervention. I wonder, you know, I think a lot of people wonder the same thing. I mean, we obviously had a significant intervention after 2008 as well. It didn't lead to this kind of inflation. What's the difference?
1: Well, um I think the difference uh is degree. What happened in 2008, 2007 and 2008 was um what happens in every every crisis, the treasury borrows money and and the and the Federal Reserve prints up the money to buy the treasury's debt. They work hand in hand. <laughs> what you saw in 2007 and 2008 was an increase in the uh, in the monetary supply and in the amount and the Fed's balance sheet from roughly eight or nine hundred mi- billion prior to that crisis to roughly four billion after four trillion that. trillion a trillion. That's right, four trillion after that crisis, and a trillion, as you know, is an enormous amount of money. Yeah. It's a thousand yeah. billion. It's hugely big, big box. Yeah. Bucks. yeah. And and uh, and you can't lose lose sight of that. And when you listen to these government things, you say, "Oh, it's just another trillion. But there's <laughs> other things. Um, so 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 what happened was that when the Fed faced this crisis, its its balance sheet had not come down very much. It was already dealing with about a uh, uh, you know a, a four or five uh, trillion dollar balance sheet, and the spending in this crisis and another five trillion to that. You got up to about eight point nine trillion. Um, That's a a serious number, and uh, it's a serious amount of increase in in the monetary supply. So the problem with these crises is that you never really recover because the Fed doesn't want to sell the stuff that it bought, the debt that it bought. It does if it sold uh, two trillion dollars of uh, of uh, of commercial uh, mortgage obligations, it would destroy the housing market. If it sold the five or so five and a half trillion of uh, treasury debt. Uh, that it had, it would destroy the treasury markets. Of which the markets
2: were overpriced exactly because of the Fed buying? Right. So you got these tremendous tops in the markets, yeah. which were created by the Fed itself being the big bid to buy at the very high prices. Could I just add one sure, thing in there, too? And that is that uh, this wasn't only happening in the US, you had many other central banks altogether. In, and we, we treat this, actually, in a chapter in the book, uh, we call central banking to the max. And, and we, we document how uh, European Central Bank, Bank of England, Bank of Canada, Bank of Japan, Federal Reserve, they're all in this together. So you get an international multiplication uh, with the result of, a first of all, a tremendous asset price inflation which did already happen after the earlier interventions during the teens, during the 20 teens, a tremendous inflation, but inflation and asset prices. That continued then in beginning in late 2020. And we talk about that in the book, this the second surprise, the second COVID surprise was the, the big asset bubbles. And then of course, the consumer price, inflation. But it's very interesting to see how this is, this isn't just the Fed, it's all these central banks, getting together uh, and all doing that same. And there, there are some very uh, striking graphs in the book to that effect.
0: What do you think, uh, where do you think this all ends? Uh, or not ends, <laughs> but, you know, is there, you know, it just seems like we're um, on the brink of something again, something big. Um, and, and the question in my mind is always, you know, at, at some point do we end up with some kind of reset um, do you foresee that? I mean, I know there's people out there talking about—I uh, don't even know if it's a legitimate economic philosophy, but this uh, modern modern monetary theory, um, things like that. Wh- wh- where do you think this is? Uh, where do you think this ends?
1: Well, Bob, modern monetary theory. I think this inflation, if nothing else. Um, demonstrates what absolute nonsense modern monetary theory um, was. The idea that the government can borrow forever with no impact on, uh, on interest rates and no adverse consequences. Well, look at the inflation that we're dealing with now. Uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, I, I tell you what I worry about, and I, I wrote about it in a, uh, a piece in the, uh, well, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, in December. Uh, as I said, you, you just never you never go back to zero. We're never going to go back to a fed balance sheet of eight or nine hundred um, billion because each crisis is cumulative. You borrow more, you spend more and 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 the levels get higher. and what I worry about is we're very lucky because we live in a great country, and uh, everyone wants a United States treasury debt because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, foreign central banks. Uh, keep their foreign re- the bulk of their foreign reserves and dollars that create in the form of treasury debt, that creates tremendous demand for treasury debt. But it isn't uh, it isn't infinite. Nothing's infinite in the world. There are only eight billion, eight billion people in the world. And you know, ultimately, we may borrow to a point where we can't borrow anymore. And that concerns me.
2: Howard, we have a two part saying, half of the nothing is infinite is Howard's part. And my part is, and nothing is free. Right. Whatever you do, you pay a price for. And and that's Uh, what modern
1: monetary theory gets completely wrong. There is a cost to everything. (laughs) Uh,
0: Again, the book is surprised again. The COVID crisis and the new market bubble. Are we missing any major themes here that we haven't addressed on this that might be worthwhile bringing up?
2: uh, We'll just stress one of one of the things that surprised again in uh, surprised again is is a kind of meta-meditation on the nature of uncertainty, uh, particularly in financial markets, uh, and how if you have a dream that there's going to be some master, uh, a central bank or a government or anybody, sitting aside and taking care of you and making sure that nothing goes wrong, uh, that's a dream you'll, you'll wake up from, because we, we think... And we discuss uh, in 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 the book and use the twenty twenty panic as an example, but the examples come along as we said every ten years or so of the of the fundamental uncertainty that is to say unknowability of the financial future
1: and uh, the book um goes on to take number one examines what happened during the covid crisis uh the tremendous shock to the financial system massive government intervention that led to a reinflation of all assets and to the ever uh, so-called everything bubble and the inflation we have now uh, and it talks about as Alex said uh, the nature of uh, financial uncertainty um, in particular but also takes a look about certain uh, uh, sectors of the of the financial system of the economy if you will that uh, are likely to create trouble in the future and those uh, those areas are uh, that we look at uh, include money market funds, uh, cryptocurrency, student loan uh, uh, debacle, public pension plans, which are another huge problem, and so we we try to develop we try to look at weaknesses from housing. From, uh, you didn't
2: mention real estate and housing, but yeah, real estate and housing, and finally
1: uh, just the the role of central banks uh, in general. So um, we think that it, it not only looks at the past, but it uh, is a good view in, into the future. Uh, and uh, some of the stuff that we said, uh, almost, you know, we, we wrote the book, uh, really uh, finished it almost about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And some of the stuff, when I read the editorial pages, and I, uh, I just read one in the journal the other day about will the federal government uh, be bailing out uh, blue states and their underwater public pension plans? And now, uh, you know, we we asked the same question, you know, a year ago. So I think we were uh, a little bit prescient. And uh, I think there are plenty of things to worry about. But the good news is that we have an incredibly strong economy. We live in the greatest country in the world thus far. And uh, it has managed to uh, survive uh, every shock that has been presented to it. And uh, uh, we believe uh, it is likely to continue to do so, although there are grounds to worry about.
0: Good stuff, Um, and it sounds like you have enough material for the next three books as well there, ready to go. So, (laughs) Alex Pollock and Howard Adler in the book, again, is Surprised Again, The COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble, available pretty much everywhere. Have you guys done an Audible book? We have not. We have not, no. Got it. So not available on Audible, but you can read the old-fashioned way. So, Okay, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and we'd love to have you back again in the near future.
1: And thank thank you you so much for having us. We really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Great to be with you. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Interesting concept, right? Essentially the idea being that, you know, the government's just constantly kind of looking for opportunities to increase its role and control and stuff like that like the guys brought up the uh, whole idea of the central bank decentralized currencies things like that Um, could be the next could be the next thing but you know that's a whole nother show altogether because the question of whether those cbds are really intended to you know exchange out cash i doubt that i think they will be much better at tracking people's behavior and that kind of thing though At any rate, I'm sure the government would love to have that. The Internal Revenue Service would love to have that. Uh, Anybody who wants to know more about you would love to have that control. But hopefully, we'll also have these prevailing forces, counter forces, that can prevent some of these uh, civil liberties from being violated. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.